You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. This today is our fourth sermon in the Gospel of John. We're walking through the Gospel of John together. And today we're going to be hanging out in chapter 2. But I want to start by saying one word and think about your initial reaction. When you hear this word, what is your first response to it? Alcohol. Now, for some of you, that's going to bring tremendous baggage. For some, hearing that word, maybe your first thought is, is fairly positive. You'd say, you know, I've never really struggled with it. Maybe it calls to mind the Lord's Supper in some churches, not ours. Maybe it calls to mind a wedding reception, maybe your own. And so you think, you know, I've never really struggled with it. I don't have an issue. And if that's your first response, know that you are probably in the minority. For some of you, it's neutral. You'd say, well, I've seen good and bad. Maybe even for yourself, you'd say, my past was bad, but in the present, I feel like I've got self-control. For most of you, the initial response is negative. You'd say something like, one of my parents was alcoholic, and it was just, it was awful growing up. Some of you might say, my first marriage dissolved because of alcohol. Some of you would say it's a generational issue, and it's still going on. Others of you would look back over your life and realize that Some of the most regrettable things you've said and done were under the influence of alcohol. That being said, we're going to get into this issue today. Why bring this up? Because church is about three things. It's for people to come and meet with God. It's for God's people to meet together. And it's to get God's perspective on practical issues for your life. And the reason I bring all this up today is because as we're going through the Gospel of John for this year, we happen upon chapter 2 today, and it's the first miracle recorded in this Gospel that Jesus performs, and it's Jesus turning water into wine. Yeah, you all know that story. Unless you're Baptist, it's, it's grape juice, but let me start with this alcohol legally. Now, this is Apostle Paul writing to the Romans. This, you think, okay, there's no mention of alcohol in this passage, but stick with me a minute. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. This is a general biblical principle for all of God's people. There are God's laws and there are government laws. And the government laws set minimal standards for social order. Of course, God's laws call us to a higher standard. For example, the government doesn't have a law against adultery, but God does. The government doesn't have a law against bitterness, but God does. The government doesn't have a law against hating someone in your heart, God does. 
That's because God's standards are higher than government standards. So we are to hold to government standards provided that they are not against God's law. So what does this mean practically? You should not consume alcohol unless you're how old in America? 21, that's the law. If your blood alcohol is over a certain level, you shouldn't get behind the wheel of a car. It means you shouldn't buy or provide alcohol to a minor. These are the minimum standards required by the government. And as God's people, we need to ascribe to those mineral, those minimal standards. But as I already said, in addition, God's standards are higher. Now, that's alcohol legally. Let me give you some information about alcohol historically, because here's what happens in our world. We are born into a culture. This is all we've ever known. And so this is normative for us. But historically, God's people and their relationship to alcohol is a bit different than what most of us think of in the American church. For instance, in the Middle Ages, the church, and in particular, the monasteries, were Europe's largest brewers. In addition, John Calvin, and we're talking 16th century, Protestant Reformation, kind of the the father of Presbyterianism. In John Calvin's salary package was included two measures of wine. Now, I don't know if that's daily, weekly, I don't know. What about the Puritans landing at Plymouth Rock? Did you know that they originally had their sights set on Virginia? But the Mayflower was diverted when they ran out of beer. Now, a lot of that had to do with the fact that water was unsafe on that voyage. Nonetheless, records indicate that the first permanent building erected on Plymouth Rock was a brewery. All of this starts to pivot in the U.S. In the 19th century, the temperance movement made its way to America. What was behind that? Too much consumption, social disorder, broken families. And so alcohol was largely outlawed. Of course, that didn't deter everybody. That's when the moonshiners came into prominence and underground breweries and the like. It even affected the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in some churches. So, Dr. Thomas Welch, a British-American dentist and Methodist minister, created something called, can you guess, Welch's grape juice, so that God's people can have communion without violating the laws. Today, we think through the lens of our culture And so in America, much of drinking is done in a bar, right? In Europe, it's a pub. Is there much of a difference? Yeah, there is. A pub is a lot like a big living room, and it's where people go to socialize. It's not just for drinking. They'll go there to hang out, to play cards and dominoes. And do you know that school kids even go to pubs not to drink, but to do their homework? Would you allow your kids to do their homework in a bar? Usually a bar is dark, loud, people wear their underwear as outerwear, and they drink too much. So when we think of alcohol, we think of all 
the use and abuse and social disorder and the bar culture. And in today's world, in regard to alcohol, some Christians believe that it's okay in moderation. Some say, well, you should never touch it. What does the Bible have to say? We've looked at alcohol legally, historically, culturally. What about biblically? Very bottom line, Apostle Paul, Ephesians 5, 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk on wine, he says, that leads to debauchery. That's immorality, corruption, depravity. Because when you drink too much, you do some really base things. You know, I've never heard anyone say, when I drink, I get smarter. And my discernment increases. And, and, you know, things about my life get remarkably going in the right direction. The problem is, when it comes to drinking, many times you do it to avoid your life, to avoid problems in your life. Rather than going to God and saying, God, I'm up against a very difficult, very discouraging situation. And I need to invite the Holy Spirit to empower me to walk through it. Instead, we go to something else to try to avoid life. And it's not that all alcohol consumption is a sin. And what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage is that when life gets hard, you need God to fill it, not alcohol to self-medicate it. So let's start where we can all agree upon, a place where we can all come at this. And that is, as God's people, we believe the Bible. And we believe that the Bible says that drunkenness is a sin. But not only that, here's something else we need to agree upon. God loves you. God has good things in store for your life. And he doesn't want you to hurt yourself or others. Now, having said that, there are three basic positions that we can hold when it comes to alcohol. The first is the prohibitionist view, that alcohol is all evil, all alcohol consumption is a sin. The problem then is when we get to this passage, we haven't even seen yet, who is it that turns water into wine? It's Jesus. So if it's evil, what's Jesus doing? Let me just say this. If you think you're more holy than Jesus, you need to scoot over. In addition to John chapter 2, Jesus would undoubtedly have had wine at Passover celebrations. But I get where this stems from. If all you've seen in, in alcohol is abuse and nothing but horrific consequences, consequences then this position is appealing but we can't change the Bible. The second position is that of abstinence. They come to the same conclusion as those who are in the prohibition view, position, but they they get there in a different way. They would say that alcohol is not evil, alcohol consumption is not a sin, but so many people struggle with it and some have such abuse and addiction to it then out of love for people, God's people should forego their freedom and not consume so that it's not a temptation to others. This is a little bit more reasonable. 
Because they're not trying to change what the Bible says. They're trying to appeal to the well-being of others. I get it. People are more important than issues. Relationships are more important than freedom. But the basic premise behind their view is this. People sin with alcohol, so let's get rid of it. Question. Are there other things that people sin with? (laughs) Yeah, what kind of things? Everything. So we don't get rid of everything. It's that there needs to be a change of heart. And the third position is that of moderation. For some it's a sin, for some it's not. So proceed with wisdom and caution and go to the Lord with it. Okay, God, is there anything in your word that'll help me with this? What is your will for this area of my life? Now, no one should over-consume, which means some should not consume at all. And those who do should do it in moderation. On a positive note, this distinguishes between God's laws and my rules. Some of you need to know there is a difference. Is it okay for you to have your rules? Yes. But it's not okay if I pretend my rules are also God's laws. We call that legalism. My own story is this. We never had alcohol in the home when I was growing up, so it was never an issue for me. I've never been drunk, and so seldom have we had anything alcoholic, Lori and I, and definitely not beer. I can't stand the taste of it. But I don't think alcohol itself is evil, so I'm definitely in the moderation camp. Let me tell you a funny story. This is several years ago. Um, our church participated in a, in a church league basketball team, and um, <laughs> I think some of you might know where this is going. 15, 20 years ago, I don't even know how long ago this was, and this was at a time, you know, and I, would, I was a little bit more fit and um, would play, and I would, you know, go out the door, I'd grab a water bottle, but they weren't, you know, we didn't have the, the fancy water bottles that we have, you know, at least not in our house, it was just a regular bottle, we put water in it. I usually stored two or three of those in the refrigerator, head on to the game, great, you know, come out really tired, thirsty, grab the water bottle, okay. Prior to this particular game, some few days beforehand, Lori was making a meal that required I think it was cooking sherry. I'm not even sure what it was. So she went to the store and got what she needed to make this recipe. We didn't even own a corkscrew. So her removing the cork, it just was shattered. I mean, it was screwdriver, pliers, hammer, everything else she could find in the house. I never knew what she did with the rest of the cooking sherry she didn't need. Some of you might know where this is going. So fast forward to that basketball game, and I have been playing, I come out, I'm sitting on the bench, man, I am just exhausted. I think I ran up down two or three times. So I'm ready, grab that water bottle. I start to take a drink, and it burned all the way down, like, oh my gosh. I now realize what Lori did with the extra alcohol. 
And I turned to one of the teammates who's sitting on the bench with me, and I said, do you know where the water fountain is? He looks at me. He looks at the, <laughs> the fact that I've got a water ball in my hand. I said, don't ask any questions. Just, do you know where the water fountain is? And, and all I could imagine is getting back into the game and the referee going, come here. <laughs> and I get kicked. The pastor gets kicked out of the basketball game because I've got alcohol on my breath. So why are we talking about this? Because one of the things about the church is that the church is about people coming to meet with God, God's people meeting with each other, and to get God's perspective on the practical issues around your life. Now, John chapter 2. So that was your first sermon. That one was the free one. This is John chapter 2. We're going to look at Jesus turning the water into wine. The first recorded miracle in this gospel, and only John has it out of the four gospels. This miracle. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Jesus got invited to parties. He is awesome. He is fun. And, and just let me say this. If you get married, you should invite Jesus to your wedding. Just putting that out there. Because he'll show up. Now when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This seems like an awkward conversation about to start here. Woman, why do you involve me? All of a sudden, some men just found a new life verse. <laughs> but I can promise you, Jesus didn't say it in any disregard to his mom. In fact, woman was not a derogatory uh, title like we might think in our culture. It was actually a term of endearment in the first century. So the fuller verse is, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Mom, I was going to debut my global ministry, but not because you told me to perform some chore at a wedding ceremony to fix the bar. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now that should be a life verse for all of us. Do whatever he tells you. In ancient weddings, this was a big deal. Once you were engaged, you would prepare for that wedding day for 12 months. The groom busy preparing for a house, furnishings, and getting everything ready for his bride. The bride spending that year getting her items together to make the house hold a, a living uh, just establishment for them and their family as it would grow. Twelve months they would spend on this time. And when the day came, the groom and the groomsmen would travel to the bride's home, the parents' home, and, and get the bride and go to the wedding event. It was a grand parade. as all a part of it. This was supposed to be the perfect, well-thought-out day. The problem here, the caterer didn't bring enough supplies for all of the guests. 
But now here's the real question. Why would Jesus, why would God have the first miracle at a wedding? Here's why. Weddings are a dress rehearsal for the kingdom of God. I'll prove it to you. The Bible opens with a wedding. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are husband and wife. God creates the whole idea of marriage right there. And then the Bible details that human history closes with a wedding. Revelation 19, 6 through 8, the wedding supper of the Lamb. What this means is, The eternal kingdom of God is like a party, a wedding, where Jesus is the groom and the church, his people, are the bride. And they are loved and they have a party that never ends. So it makes sense that Jesus is beginning to unveil his glorious kingdom at a wedding celebrating a loving relationship. We're talking about the the kingdom So I need to point out that some of you probably have a false, inaccurate view of heaven. Because what you've seen caricatured is that we all become, this is is heaven to some, we all become like a baby, a chubby baby, wearing a diaper, sitting on a fluffy cloud, playing what instrument? A harp. Yeah, you've heard it. And we have wings too small to fly. How many of you are not motivated by that? (laughs) Good. I've got good news for you then. That is not God's picture of the kingdom. God's picture of the kingdom is a party, a feast, a great celebration. Heaven is like an all-inclusive resort where Jesus picks up the tab. So this wedding feast in Cana of Galilee in the first century is practice, it's anticipation, it's preparation for the kingdom of God. John 2 continues, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons total you're talking 120 to 180 gallons and Jesus is going to turn that into wine Jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim then he told them now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet they did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best until now. The kingdom of God is like a party where Jesus provides everything and it's all excellent. There is a prophecy in Isaiah 25 given 700 years in advance of this event. This is Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. 
In the kingdom of God, it's all going to be awesome. That's why as God's people, we eat, not for gluttony, but for God. We drink, not to forget our problems, but to hope for the future. This is why God's people are to be about celebration and rejoicing without sinning. Because sinning brings suffering. But worshiping is wonderful. That's all what's happening in John 2. Jesus provides, and it is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. Back to John 2. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. When Jesus brings the kingdom of God, things change. Water becomes wine. Dead people become alive. Separated people become reconciled to God. Those who were blind now have sight. Those who are deaf now hear. When the kingdom shows up and the kingdom shows off, everything changes and the signs are revealing that the king is here. And his disciples believed in him. Here's the point. You need to believe in Jesus. He doesn't want you just to be impressed by him. He wants to be in a relationship with you. And if you believe in Jesus, what awaits you is an eternal party that never ends. And this is how we end our passage today. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let me say this. In our culture, it seems that faith is supposed to be internal and private, not external and public. When Jesus shows up and Jesus shows off and a miracle happens, in this case, what he's saying is, look, I work on the internal, you know, your heart, your soul, but I also work on the external and all the things that are surrounding your life. I work on the things that are unseen in your life, and I work on the things that are surrounding your life. Jesus refuses to play by the restrictions and limitations of the culture in which we exist. Look, Jesus is Lord over all. Internal and external. And let me close with this. Think about this. Aren't we all looking for heaven on earth? That's why we move to improve our situation. It's why we strive for good things to come to us. It's why we want and long for relationships with people who are going to bring us joy. And when we stop and think about it, we're all looking for Jesus. He's the only one who can improve our situation. He's the one who has good things in store for us. He's the one whose relationship will be one only of joy and hope and life and redemption. Here's our goal at Benton Heights Presbyterian. We are here to help you meet this Jesus in preparation for the kingdom. So come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, be with God's people. Be in God's presence.
and help us celebrate King Jesus. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.